You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everyone. Before the official start of this episode, Tracy and I just want to take a minute to put in a shameless plug for joining the Strawfoot Brigade. Uh, some of you may be new to the podcast, and you may hear us talking about the Strawfoot Brigade and aren't sure exactly what we're talking about. So what is it? It's the membership program we started for the podcast that gives y'all the opportunity to not just support what Rich and I are doing with this Civil War podcast, but also to get two extra episodes each month. Yep. Uh, the way it works is you go to the podcast website, www civilwarpodcast.org and you sign up through PayPal to make recurring monthly payments of just $5 and presto, you're a member of the Strawfoot Brigade and get those extra episodes. Just this weekend, we released members episode number 19 and in it, we talk in more detail about the sad story of Will and Ann Wallace at Shiloh. And we've covered lots of other interesting topics on the other members episodes. If you go to the website and go back to those episodes, you can see what they were about. Everything from the Great Locomotive Chase to Privateers on the High Seas to the westernmost battle of the Civil War in New Mexico. So you'll get those extra episodes, but more importantly, you'll also be helping support the podcast and keep it going. In just a few weeks, the podcast will be three years old which is kind of hard to believe uh, until we stop and think about the fact that between regular episodes, bonus episodes, and member episodes, we've done around 150 shows about the Civil War. Uh, and then it feels like we've been doing this three years. And we're still only in April 1862. And, yeah, we're still just in the first part of 1862. Uh, so if you want to help make sure we get to 1865 someday... Become a member of the Strawfoot Brigade and help support the podcast. Like Nathan and George did this past week. Exactly. Thanks, guys. We appreciate the support. Okay, now back to the regularly scheduled programming. Thanks for downloading episode 125 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. With last week's show, the fierce fighting in the woods, fields, and ravines around Pittsburgh Landing came to an end. But we wanted to use this episode to take stock of what happened at Shiloh and also to look at what happened in the battle's aftermath. When seeking to evaluate what happened at Shiloh, it's perhaps best to go back and remember that the Confederate commander, Albert Sidney Johnston, 
had actively sought the battle, seeing it as his opportunity to achieve a drastic reversal of the strategic situation in the war's western theater. Johnston was given the opportunity to try this because his counterpart, the overall Union commander in the West, Henry Halleck, surrendered the initiative to the Confederates. Halleck, to his credit, had a plan to unite all three Federal armies in the West for a grand movement against Corinth. Those three armies were Grant's Army of the Tennessee, Buell's Army of the Ohio, and John Pope's Army of the Mississippi. But Halleck's slowness and caution gave Sidney Johnston the opportunity to launch his great counteroffensive. Halleck's first step toward uniting the forces under his command was to place the Army of the Tennessee in the vicinity of Pittsburgh Landing, just a stone's throw north of Corinth. But then Halleck left that army there, inactive, ordering Grant to do nothing that might bring on a battle. Halleck's ban on aggressive action left Grant with little option but to sit on his hands at Pittsburgh Landing and guess at what the enemy in the immediate vicinity was doing and planning to do. And as we know, Grant and Sherman guessed spectacularly wrong. By positioning the Army of the Tennessee so near to Corinth, but then keeping Grant on such a tight leash, Halleck, though of course he didn't intend to do it, offered Albert Sidney Johnston the opportunity to bring on a battle on terms of the Confederate commander's choosing. And Johnston seized the initiative by choosing to launch a surprise attack on Grant's army in an attempt to destroy it before Buell's slowly approaching force arrived. In the best possible scenario for the Confederates, after he had defeated Grant, Sidney Johnston could then confront and crush Buell, and then he could deal with John Pope. If it all worked out, then the rebels would have achieved a drastic reversal of the strategic situation in the West, which had been going against them since the fall of Forts Henry and Donelson. For the Confederates, however, that best possible scenario that Rich just mentioned started with the decisive victory over Grant's Army of the Tennessee. But as y'all already know, although Albert Sidney Johnston managed to surprise the Federals encamped around Pittsburgh Landing, Ulysses S. Grant managed to salvage a victory by his own determination, the rebels' mistakes, and the tenacity of the Union soldiers. Shiloh was a must-win for the Confederacy. In few battles during the Civil War would victory present such dramatic possibilities, and so Shiloh deserves to be called one of the pivotal battles of the Civil War. Hopes of recovering the upper Mississippi Valley forever dimmed after Shiloh. Island Number 10 surrendered to Federal forces the day after Shiloh. Corinth would fall in May, and Memphis in June. And that summer, Yankee gunboats coming down the Mississippi and Union warships steaming up from New Orleans would converge on Vicksburg. Shiloh, the fall of Island Number 10, and the seizure of New Orleans, all taking place in April 1862, opened the way to the final sundering of the Confederacy, both along the line of the Mississippi River and along the Memphis and Charleston Railroad. In their defeat at Shiloh, the Confederacy lost their best chance to stop the Federals in the war's western theater. New Orleans writer George Washington Cable captured both the significance of the battle and the emotion of the time when he said, quote, 
The South never smiled again after Shiloh. In his book Shiloh in Hell Before Night, James Lee McDonough writes that quote, "If the Union Army were to be stopped, it had to be halted at Shiloh before Buell could join with Grant. The Confederates sacrificed the heart of their Western Army in this attempt, and it almost succeeded." When they failed, however, and the broken rebels went trudging back to Corinth, Shiloh became symbolic of a huge floodgate unhinged. The rebels had tried with all their might to slam it shut, but when they failed, the pressure of the federal onslaught mounted steadily and rapidly. Never did the South have a better opportunity to reverse the trend and save the Western Confederacy than at Shiloh. Albert Sidney Johnston had sent word to Richmond on April 4th that he was going to attack the enemy at Pittsburgh Landing, but then nothing more was heard until late on the evening of Sunday, April 6th, when Jefferson Davis, at the executive mansion in Richmond, received a telegram indicating that the Southern Army was, quote, advancing victoriously. The Confederate War Department also received a telegram from Corinth, which said, quote, our victory complete and glorious. A delighted Jefferson Davis lost no time in composing a message to be read before the Confederate Congress when it convened at noon on Monday the 7th. But on Monday, Davis was shocked to learn of the death of Albert Sidney Johnston. Jefferson Davis was grief-stricken at the loss of his friend, and to his message to Congress he added a short postscript eulogizing Johnston. And then, on Tuesday, April 8th, Davis appeared before Congress and gave a brief sketch of the battle, which he still believed had been a resounding Southern victory. But wild reports arrived in the Confederate capital. A congressman from Tennessee claimed that the Yankees had suffered 15,000 killed and wounded in the battle, as well as over 7,500 captured. But then, slowly the truth became known. Beauregard tried to sugarcoat it by restating at length the, quote, glorious, heroic aspects of the advance on Sunday before his decision to retire on Monday out of, quote, discretion in the face of a superior enemy force. But he also pled for reinforcements, and Jefferson Davis immediately saw through all of Beauregard's attempts to paint Shiloh as a victory. But Davis did not retract his own statements to the Confederate Congress, which had proclaimed a glorious triumph of Southern arms. Like Beauregard, Davis decided to leave the best face possible on it, for the Confederacy needed all the bucking up it could get in April 1862. There was bad blood between Beauregard and Davis, dating back to the first year of the war, before Beauregard was sent west, and the defeat at Shiloh did nothing to improve the Confederate president's opinion of the Creole general. Jefferson Davis never forgave Beauregard for issuing that stop order at Shiloh on Sunday evening. In his memoirs, Davis said, quote, At the ensuing nightfall, our victorious army retired from the front and abandoned its vantage ground on the bluffs, which had been won at such a cost of blood. The enemy thereby had room and opportunity to come out from their corner, reoccupy the strong positions from which they had been driven, and disposed their troops on more favorable ground. End quote. In his book, Shiloh, Confederate High Tide in the Heartland, 
Stephen Woodworth explains that, quote, Jefferson Davis believed that by halting the attack on the evening of April 6th, Beauregard had thrown away a victory that Albert Sidney Johnston had already as good as won before his heroic death. This was at best a badly oversimplified view of the matter, but Davis, who idolized his old friend Johnston, was adamant in that belief. Beauregard's subsequent abandonment of Corinth further convinced Davis of his unfitness for army command. When that summer Beauregard granted himself a sick leave without the president's permission, Davis replaced him with Braxton Bragg. End quote. Unlike Beauregard, Ulysses S. Grant didn't send glowing reports about the battle either to Henry Halleck in St. Louis or to the War Department in Washington. Grant's report began, quote, It becomes my duty to report another battle fought between two great armies, one contending for the maintenance of the best government ever devised, the other for its destruction, end quote. But Grant's report was so painfully short on details that Abraham Lincoln and the government were left to learn the particulars through the northern newspapers, which of course sensationalized the event. Word quickly spread that there had been a major clash and a Union victory at Pittsburgh Landing, but the northern newspapers focused their accounts more on what a near disaster the battle had been. The most influential story in this regard was written by Whitelaw Reed of the Cincinnati Gazette. Reed's article, which was widely reprinted throughout the North, chronicled all of the blunders that had nearly led to the destruction of Grant's army. In his book, Shiloh, 1862, Winston Groom writes, quote, The Shiloh story that Whitelaw Reed told was even grimmer than the harsh casualty figures suggested. All of the mistakes glared out prominently. The failure to fortify, failure to reconnoiter, failure to read the signs of impending attack, failure even to have a battle plan in case of attack. All of this in addition to the sordid spectacle of the cringing masses below the bluff who had deserted the fight. Soon other stories circulated. Accusations such as Grant's army had been so surprised that hundreds of Union soldiers were bayoneted to death in their tents, that Grant had been dallying at a mansion ten miles from the battlefield instead of staying with his troops, that he had little control of his army and most of it ran away at the first shot, that he had been saved only by the miraculous last-moment arrival of Buell." Next were the accusations of incompetence and the rumors of drunkenness. So instead of being hailed as the victor of Shiloh, Grant was suddenly denounced from the pages of northern newspapers to the halls of Congress as a hapless blunderer and a wretched alcoholic, and a chorus arose for his removal. Soon the uproar was such that Abraham Lincoln was forced to deal with it. Popular lore has it that Lincoln told the critics, Find out what kind of whiskey Grant drinks and send a barrel of it to my other generals. There's actually no firm evidence that the president actually said that, while there's slightly more proof that, in response to the clamor for Grant's removal, Lincoln did say, I can't spare this man. He fights. Meanwhile, back in Tennessee, Henry Halleck arrived at Pittsburgh Landing on April 11th to personally take charge of the army, or, more precisely, three Union armies, Grant's, Buell's, and Pope's. 
Pope arrived, fresh from his victory at Island Number 10, a week and a half later. Once all three armies were assembled, Halleck had 16 divisions with over 108,000 troops under his immediate command in the field. Halleck assigned Grant the meaningless post of second-in-command of the entire combined force. Although this assignment came with no duties, and in reality was Halleck's way of sidelining Grant. As the Union juggernaut prepared to advance on Corinth, Grant, in his own words, was, quote, little more than an observer, end quote. And he complained that, quote, it is generally understood through this army that my position differs but little from that of one under arrest, end quote. So embarrassing and ill-suited to his temperament was the situation that Grant requested a transfer, but his request was denied. In his book, Shiloh, The Battle That Changed the Civil War, Larry J. Daniel writes, quote, One afternoon, so the story goes, Sherman got wind that Grant was planning to quit the army. He arrived at Grant's headquarters and found him on a stool sorting mail at a camp table. After exchanging the usual greeting, Sherman bluntly asked Grant if he was leaving the army. Yes, Grant replied, with tears in his eyes. Sherman, you know the reason why. You know that I am in the way here. I have stood it as long as I can and can endure it no longer. Sherman pleaded with him to remain, and in a dramatic change of mind, Grant decided to remain. Larry Daniel goes on to note that Grant mentions that incident in his memoirs but he states that it was his intention to take a leave of absence, not quit the army. At any rate, Grant decided to stay, and the turning point in the drama came six weeks later when Halleck was promoted and summoned to Washington, and Grant effectively regained control of the Army of the Tennessee. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We ended that last section with Henry Halleck going to Washington. But before that, once he had his great force of over 100,000 men assembled at Pittsburgh Landing, 
he had begun his slow advance toward Corinth. Halleck, who had never before commanded more than a platoon in the field, took a full month to move the immense force a mere twenty miles. From the first day of the advance, April 29th, Halleck imagined that the wilderness of northern Mississippi was filled with a huge rebel army, and to ward off any chance of being surprised, as Grant had been at Shiloh, Halleck limited each day's march toward Corinth to less than a mile, then spent the rest of the day having the men dig in and construct elaborate field fortifications, just as if a Confederate attack was imminent. That nonsense continued day after day under the scorching sun, and the men naturally began to complain about this daily exercise in excavating southern soil. But Halleck wasn't taking any chances, and he wouldn't be rushed. As the Union army slowly approached Corinth, its cavalry scouts reported signs that the rebels there were being reinforced. Train whistles and the sounds of cheering came from within the Confederate lines, indicating that additional enemy troops were arriving daily. Intimidating numbers of artillery pieces could be seen anchoring the rebel fortifications. When deserters wandered into the Union lines, they told tales of many new regiments joining Beauregard's army. All of this, of course, only reinforced Halleck's natural inclination toward cautiousness. But Beauregard was actually pulling off one of the greatest sleights of hand of the Civil War. As the enormous Union horde slowly approached Corinth, the Confederate commander realized he was in a serious situation. Even after Van Dorn's arrival from the Trans-Mississippi, Beauregard could muster no more than 52,000 men fit for duty, owing to the casualties suffered at Shiloh and a crippling outbreak of camp diseases due to the unhealthy conditions at Corinth. With Halleck's immense army closing in, Beauregard realized that desperate times called for desperate measures, and so in order to save his army to fight another day, the Creole general evacuated Corinth while sending false signals to the watching Federal scouts that the Southern army was actually being reinforced. The arriving Confederate troop trains were actually a lone locomotive that ran day and night up and down the tracks that converged on Corinth. Every so often it would blow its whistle, and everyone nearby would cheer as if reinforcements were arriving. Bugles blared and drums beat as if calling regiments to action, and the fearsome-looking guns poking their barrels from embrasures in the fortifications were only Quaker artillery, that is, tree trunks stripped of bark and painted black, and the talkative rebel deserters were actually plants sent into Union lines with false reports that Beauregard's army was being heavily reinforced. Withdrawal in the face of the enemy is among the most difficult and dangerous of military maneuvers, but Beauregard did it with such daring and skill that when Halleck's army finally entered Corinth on May 30th, they discovered 2,000 Confederates who were too injured or sick to be moved, but other than that, the Federals found practically nothing to indicate that the rebels had even been there. But Jefferson Davis considered the rail junction at Corinth to be of vital importance, and he was stunned when he learned that Beauregard had given up the place without a fight. As we indicated earlier, Davis, at the first subsequent opportunity, relieved Beauregard of command. Beauregard made his removal almost easy for the president. In mid-June, he wired the War Department, informing them he was taking sick leave, and he neither asked for permission nor waited for a response. 
Jefferson Davis quickly seized the chance to have him relieved and replaced by Braxton Bragg. In the war's western theater, Bragg would lead the renamed Army of Tennessee for the next four major campaigns. As the podcast progresses, we'll have much more to say about Braxton Bragg's tenure as commander of the Confederate Army of Tennessee. But to return to Shiloh, of the commanders involved in the campaign and battle, Albert Sidney Johnston died on the field of battle, PGT Beauregard was removed from command barely two months after the clash, while Ulysses S. Grant would go on to the greatest success through the rest of the war. Shiloh was a pivotal battle, a turning point in the war in the West, and also a personal turning point in how Ulysses S. Grant viewed the conflict. In his memoirs, Grant recalled how, quote, Up to the Battle of Shiloh, I, as well as thousands of other citizens, believed that the rebellion against the government would collapse suddenly and soon if a decisive defeat could be gained over any of its armies. But, Grant continued, after taking part in the bloody carnage at Shiloh and after realizing the South's determination to continue the fight, quote, I gave up all idea of saving the Union except by complete conquest. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is The West Point History of the Civil War, which, as its title suggests, is a product of the United States Military Academy's Department of History. We recently received a box of Civil War books from Simon & Schuster. Thank you, Simon & Schuster. And one of those books we pulled out of the box was this one, The West Point History of the Civil War. And as it's pretty nifty, has tons of great maps, and lots of interesting expert narrative, we're pleased to recommend it to you. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Before we close, we have one quick programming note, and it's just to announce that now that we've finished up with Shiloh, we're going to take next weekend off, and so the next new episode and the start of a new story arc will be September 27th. So there you go. That'll give you guys something to look forward to. All right, and with that, we'll say thank you to Spiritwood Music for allowing us to use their performance of the song Midnight on the Water as the music you hear at the beginning and end of each episode. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I hope you'll join us again next time when, after 15 episodes of Shiloh, we leave the war's western theater for a while and head back east to Virginia. So that'll be next time. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.